Fired Up show starts right now. And welcome, everybody. Welcome back right here to Fired Up on WJMS Media. This is Steve. I host the show each week. And as always, we're going to talk about all things political machinery here in the United States. So I hope everybody had a great week uh, as we still fight our way through the summer heat waves going on just about everywhere in this country. Uh, Please make sure that you're taking care of yourselves, you're staying hydrated, staying cool, and all of that as we all just kind of weather this uh, summer heat that we seem to be experiencing. And the heat is not just limited to the weather. Uh, This past week, of course, kind of the big ticket item was the first uh, Republican candidate debate uh, for President of the United States held in Iowa, uh, otherwise known as the Lincoln Day Dinner. And uh, of the uh, 12 uh, Republican candidates running, uh, everybody was present with the exception of New Jersey Governor Chris Christie who, as he is not running uh, a campaign in Iowa, focusing instead on the upcoming uh, election uh, vote in New Hampshire, uh, he was not on the stage last night, but the other Republican candidates were, and of course, you know, in, in no particular order, uh, that includes uh, you know, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pence, uh, Will Hurd, uh, Doug Burgum, uh, Francis Suarez, Asa Hutchinson, Tim Scott, Vivek Ramaswamy, Nikki Haley, and of course the current front runner in the Republican uh, contingent, Donald Trump. Uh, as from what I've seen in the news reports, uh, it was pretty much as expected. Uh, Trump fired off salvos at DeSantis, DeSantis fired back. Uh, all of the other candidates took their turns taking pot shots at, at Donald Trump, uh, accusing and and uh, calling uh, President Joe Biden weak, bringing up the Hunter Biden affair over and over again. All the same noise that we've been hearing uh, for the past uh, several months in the Republican side of the issue. Uh, what was uh, lacking in large part was a a serious engagement and discussion uh, on the key issues facing the country you know whether it's talking about inflation whether it's talking about the economy uh, and all of the uh, things going on overseas you know the the questions about uh, what's happening in Israel with uh, the vote being taken over there to reduce the power of their uh, Supreme Court uh, the of course the war in Ukraine, all of these issues were uh, not given the depth of attention that one would normally expect in a presidential candidate debate. But nonetheless, uh, it was probably good uh, television to watch. I will freely admit that I did not see it, and I've been reading accounts of it uh, through the various media sources uh, all weekend. So. Be that as it may, I want to take a moment before I get into um, the stories I want to cover and and do kind of an editorial here. Uh, First and foremost, let me say that, you know, the editorial views expressed are those of myself as the uh, broadcaster and content creator for Fired Up Podcast, and they do not necessarily reflect the views of WJMS Media LLC. Uh, its sponsors, partners, uh, show hosts, and ownership. So, having got that out of the way, uh, one of the things uh, that I think, uh, if you've listened to this show for any length of time, uh, you've kind of heard me paint the picture that you know there there is a fundamental political problem here in the United States of America, uh, and the. Uh, divide between Republican and Democrat and right and left uh, is only a, a part of it. Uh, I think the, the bigger problem here in America is that there's a problem of imbalance. What we have is the uh, extreme right wing uh, of the Republican Party uh, has been and continues to be very loud and vociferous on its uh, complaints about 
the current uh, Democratic administration, the current directions of the country, and you know all of that. Um, and you know we continually hear from various factions within that conservative arm of the Republican Party, uh, whether they be white nationalists, white supremacists, uh, MAGA, you know, and, and other uh, factions uh, of uh, white pr uh, political radicalism. So what's missing really is uh, any substantive Democratic Party pushback. Now, granted, the uh, individual members of the Democratic Party, uh, such as Hakeem Jeffries, the minority leader in the House of Representatives, Vice President Kamala Harris, recently on her uh, trips and speeches regarding the Florida uh, uh, education component that was just signed by Governor DeSantis uh, and, and so forth, uh, there's been a decided lack of really strong, vociferous Democrat pushback to the message that's being continually pushed out from the, the right side uh, media megaphone. And I think this is a problem that uh, is reflecting itself in both the, the closeness of the poll numbers. Uh, clearly, the Democrats have a very strong message that they should be running on. Uh, the economy is doing well. Jobs are down at historic low levels. Uh, you know, and you know, all of the indicators, even inflation, which has been a popular uh, hammering point by the Republicans uh, over the past uh, 18 months, uh, is now uh, down around three, three point something percent. And, you know, it, it, it looks like uh, it will achieve the you know, 2% goal that the Fed uh, is seeking to, to have for it. All of these points uh, are victories that the Biden administration should be screaming from the mountaintop. And, you know, not just the administration, the Democratic-controlled Senate, uh, the uh, strong presence of Democrats in the House, uh, all of these uh, Democratic leaders, uh, all up and down the tickets, should be uh, taking every opportunity they can to tell the American people what the Democratic Party has accomplished on their behalf. Uh, and yet, as I said, aside from a few national leaders, uh, we don't hear enough about that uh, we should be hearing about it on a daily basis. Uh, every time you know, a Democrat steps to the mic, they should be talking about how well the economy is doing, how the uh, programs that the Biden administration has in bipartisan fashion uh, gotten through Congress are starting to uh, show uh, the fruits of those uh, pieces of legislation whether it's the infrastructure project, whether it's the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, all of these elements. Uh, even the discussion on uh, eliminating uh, student debt. Uh, while the Republicans have uh, had a, a temporary uh, block put on that, uh, but the Biden administration is coming back with a revised plan that looks like it may have the uh, ability to uh, pass in a bipartisan fashion and give some much-needed relief to uh, the the 40-plus uh, million uh, people out there with crushing student debt. Uh, but yet, what we hear uh, is a very timid, uh, very uh, genteel uh, response from the Democrats in, in, in terms of what the Republicans are saying and also capitalizing on the uh, Republican tendency to take credit for these, uh, these bills that the Biden administration has gotten through, even though uh, they voted them down, by and large, uh, in, in both the House and Senate. Uh, we've seen several cases where Republican Congress people and Republican senators have stood up, you know, thumped their chest and taken credit for an infrastructure project or a 
you name it project that they in fact did not vote for but yet now that their constituents are seeing the benefit they of course want to stand up and go see look what I did for you when you know in, in the words of that uh, Stevie Wonder song you haven't done nothing so you know there is a, a clear uh, sense of uh, what is needed and you know to, to give you a perspective uh, if you take a look back and and look at uh, the the 1960s, for example, there were activist voices uh, speaking up from many sectors of society. Uh, voices like Malcolm X, Stokely Carmichael, Angela Davis, Cesar Chavez, H. Rat Brown, Amiri Baraka, uh, you know, Bobby Seale, Huey P. Newton, and you know, just a host of other. Uh, leaders who were standing up and screaming at the establishment uh, with very loud and very pointed arguments as to why that you know there's uh, more fairness and equality needed uh, or that you know there were change that needed to happen uh, there were people who were uh, putting not only their lives but their their careers on the line Muhammad Ali was stripped of his heavyweight titles because he refused uh, to uh, to fight in the Vietnam War on his principles. Uh, where is that type of activism today? I realize, and I'm not throwing shade on those that are out there, the young people from the Parkland School who, in, in the uh, aftermath of the tragedy that struck there, to find a, their own national stage to bring the message of ending gun violence. That was a very bright uh, flame that, you know, has, has fizzled, in my opinion, has fizzled down uh, largely over the years since. Uh, there's been, you know, the, the arguments that have been made, uh, again, related to gun violence. After the, uh, the shooting in Connecticut, you know, where, you know, 21, uh, three to six year olds were gunned down, you know, after Uvalde, um, you know, there was a, a flurry of protests after George Floyd. But there have been dozens of people before and since uh, who have been gunned down uh, in, in gun violence. Uh, there have been all level of uh, confrontations that have arisen around voter suppression and disenfranchisement and gerrymandering, yet there isn't a constant chorus of, uh, of people uh, expressing their displeasure, calling for action, uh, pressuring our leaders to actually stop talking about doing something and actually do something. Uh, this, is, this is the difference uh, that we see between you know what's going on politically today and what we saw happening back in you know the the 1960s and, and early 1970s uh, with the the protests and the the voicing of strong opinion uh, in in my view there needs to be a return to that kind of vocal activism on a regular basis you know uh, after you know Trump was elected, the Me Too movement was another instance where a movement organically grew, uh, burned brightly in the sky, and then you know uh, saying not saying that you know it's disappeared, but its light has been diminished. That light needs to be restoked and refired. Same thing with Black Lives Matter. You know, same thing with all of these groups that you know took to the streets. Uh, in in a, a social protest that drew very uh, bright uh, attraction, you know, very bright spotlight for a very brief period of time, and then kind of just settled down to a quiet, dull roar in the background. We need to uh, get back to the roots of what happened in the '60s to have a continual vocal uh, presence being felt to have you know daily weekly monthly protests going on conversations that are being brought to our elected officials 
at the state and local level as well as at the federal level. We need to get back to a level of activism that we have not seen in this country since the 1960s and 1970s. Uh, and uh, you know, un until we do, we're going to continue in this yo-yo back and forth of Democrat control, Republican control, Democrat victory, Republican victory. You know, all of these things are related to the fact that uh, the perception is there within our politicians that the the great majority of Americans are willing to sit silently on the sidelines and watch all of this go on like they're watching a tennis match. Um, watch the ball go back and forth over the net uh, and not really get in and, you know, get down in, in the dirt and get politically active. Uh, not saying, don't get me wrong, I am not saying that there are not political activists out there that they are working every day. I'm saying that when we look at how things transpired, you know, in the 60s and 70s by comparison, it is a very, uh, particularly on the Democratic side, it is a very genteel, very social, very don't ruffle the feathers kind of approach uh, that we see by and large. And what we need to see is much more of a constant messaging happening. Uh, remember Occupy Wall Street? Uh, their group of people did just that. They set up a camp on Wall Street to bring attention to the banking crises going on in this country. And for a period of time, they were the focus of much of the news. Same thing with the, the Black Lives Matter movement after the, the shooting of George Floyd. Even though there had been uh, other you know, heinous uh, killings of uh, black and brown people uh, at the hands of the police in, in the, the years and months ahead of George Floyd and in the years and months that have occurred since. Um, but without that continued vocal uh, presence in the streets, bringing attention to the grievances of the people, uh, letting politicians know that these things are being watched, that they are being engaged with, uh, we really are just going to keep going through the cycle of back and forth, Republican to Democrat to Democrat to Republican. And uh, that, I think, is, is what uh, effort needs to be put in uh, to change. Not saying that, you know, protests and disagreement and, and all of that isn't happening. It is. It just needs to get the volume cranked way up. Uh, and that's my thought on that. Uh, sorry for the long rant, but it just reflects the views from where I sit uh, and what I see and my thoughts. So if you uh, want to issue feedback on that, you want to push back to me on it, uh, you want to agree, disagree, argue, uh, send an email, firedupradio at yahoo.com, uh, and let me know what you're thinking. You know, give me your thoughts. I'd love to hear from you know, all of you out there as to what you see going on in, in your area. And, you know, hey, I could be wrong. If I am, let me know. All right. So let's uh, change gears a little bit. Also, in last week's show, we talked about the potential of having a third party uh, running in the general election. And there's been continued discussion uh, about the viability of the No Limits Party, uh, as well as uh, the impact that uh, the Green Party might have with their uh, potential candidate of uh, Dr. Cornell West. Um, the, the scary part that has been uh, coming to the forefront is that, uh, according to the political thinkers out there, uh, the presence of a third party candidate is being widely discussed as a uh, sort of guarantee to return uh, former President Donald Trump to the White House as it will siphon away votes from the uh, Democratic candidate. Uh, and, you know, as this happened before in, you know, uh, Gore v. Bush uh, in 2000 where uh, Jill Stein uh, 
you know, got enough votes to keep um, former Vice President Al Gore from, you know, having a clear victory in Florida and thereby uh, securing uh, the presidency. And, you know, the the idea that, you know, one of these third parties might do that again uh, has a lot of people, particularly on the uh, independent, progressive and democratic side, uh, concerned because the one thing that they can all agree on is none of them want to see uh, former President Trump uh, return to power. Uh, as we talked about in last week's show, he already has, uh, or the Republicans already have a plan called uh, Project 2025, where uh, should Donald Trump return to the Oval Office, he is going to uh, work to uh, exercise uh, ultimate control over every facet of the federal government. Uh, he's going to uh, institute uh, purges and loyalty tests and the elimination of positions, the ability to fire any uh, federal employee, both uh, political and non-political uh, appointees, simply because you know they you know disagree with him or are not quote sufficiently loyal close quote to Donald Donald Trump. In effect, he is going to turn the presidency into something of an autocratic regime, uh, much like uh, you know Erdogan. Uh, and, and others that you might name on the world stage. And, you know, this is something that uh, we should be concerned about. Uh, I have made no bones about the fact that I am an advocate to have a viable third-party candidate. I still believe that. However, I have to um, caveat that by saying uh, there is an extraordinary circumstance here that plays into the equation in that, uh, you know, should a third party candidate be there and should, you know, a Republican or a Democrat lose uh, because of that candidate, that third party candidate stealing votes, well, that's the will of the people and that's the way it's supposed to work. However, uh, we now know, based on uh, the, the four years of his first term, and what we have seen and heard from him uh, in the years since he left office, never mind all of the, you know, uh, two indictments, uh, a uh, verdict of guilty in a rape and sexual assault suit, uh, and, you know, potentially two more uh, federal level indictments and a host of, you know, state uh, civil actions going on that Donald Trump is a clear and present danger to our democracy. So, you know, I, I temper my zeal for having a third party involved in the elections uh, by saying, yes, we should, just not right now. Uh, right now, we need to move to preclude um, the, the kind of chaos that a second Trump term would cause and, you know, uh, get past that and build in a strong third-party coalition that can bring forth you know, viable candidates at the state, uh, local, uh, and, and you know, congressional and Senate level, absolutely. Uh, but a, a viable third-party presidential uh, candidate, uh, in my opinion, is, is more overall trouble for the country and our democracy than it is worth at this time. I'm not saying that you know, post-2024, we can't, you know, look at and work toward and engage with that and use the four years between national elections to build a, a solid, uh, reflective third party that uh, would bring the voice of the people clearly and solidly into the political process in Washington, D.C. It's just right now, the risk of returning Trump to power is just too dangerous. So you know, that, that's my take. Again, you want to argue about it? Send me an email, firedupradio at yahoo.com. Uh, I'm always willing to have discussions uh, and debates on the pros and cons of third-party uh, political uh, entities, and this is a perfect time to do that. 
So in the last uh, few minutes of this first segment, uh, let's update you on some of the stories we uh, uh, brought out to you on the last podcast. Uh, remember that uh, barbed wire barrier that Texas Governor Greg Abbott had uh, installed across uh, sections of the Rio Grande uh, in an effort to uh, stop uh, immigrants from crossing at you know, some of the places where they did in large numbers? Well, uh, what has transpired in uh, the week since we brought you that story is uh, the Department of Justice uh, issued an order to the state of Texas to take down that uh, barrier, uh, and the state of Texas flatly refused, saying that it is within their power to control access across that waterway. Well, that didn't stop the battle. Uh, a uh, court uh, has ordered the uh, Texans to remove that barrier uh, at while uh, a case uh, for it is proceeding through the court system. And at least as of the, the day of this recording, uh, it still has not yet been removed. So Texas, uh, in the person of Governor Abbott, uh, seems to be digging its heels in the ground and saying we're going to keep this barrier that has already killed uh, at least a half a dozen people and injured many more uh, as they've tried to either cross over uh, that barrier or go upstream or downstream where the waters are deeper and the current is swifter and they have drowned. So we'll, we'll keep up to date on that. We'll bring you more developments as it occurs. Uh, in addition, one of the other stories that we covered last week uh, was the battle going on over the Alabama uh, Congressional District uh, gerrymandering case. Well, uh, much like Texas, Alabama is thumbing its nose at uh, the federal government, and they have enacted a uh, redrawn sort of map uh, that didn't accomplish the directives that they were ordered to accomplish, that being to establish two districts where um, black voters had uh, enough of a majority in order to allow them to elect the candidates of their choice. The new district map, uh, while it did increase the percentages, some still fell far short of where the federal government had ordered the state uh, to get to. So that battle continues to go on, and we will uh, keep an eye on that and let you know how that transpires. Uh, but th these two cases point up something that I've, I've mentioned on this podcast before. Uh, one of the things we're seeing, uh, whether we're talking about you know, Florida or Texas or Arizona, uh, or you know, New Mexico or, or any of these uh, southern states, these red states, is we're seeing uh, a lot of these action taken for no other, well, not exactly for no other reason, but for a main reason being that because uh, and based on the strength of their Republican majorities in those states, they believe that they can do what they want. Now, you know, while again, Republicans are in the majority in many states. Uh, Republicans control uh, 28, uh, no, 23 uh, state governments uh, in the United States. Uh, that doesn't mean that you know there are no Democrats there or there are no independents there. There's no one that can challenge them. It, uh, it just means that uh, there's an uphill battle that needs to be fought and we need to fight it. We need to get, uh, starting at the local level, we need to get more uh, you know, progressive uh, Democratic uh, candidates elected. Uh, building back majorities is something that is gonna take time, uh, but we need to get in this for the long game and make sure that we are working to build a more representative democracy in those states that reflect the facts that even though they are classified as red, there are many enclaves of uh, blue in those states. So again, we'll talk about this uh, on an ongoing basis, particularly the closer we get to November 2024. All right, so let's take our break here. Uh, you're listening to the Fired Up Podcast. This is Steve. We'll be right back after this message. I was going to get my bold ID card because they said 
you had to have it in order to be able to vote. When I got there, I approached the gentleman at the counter and told him what I wanted. I showed him my veterans card. He said, that was no good. He said, you had to have a state-issued ID card in order to be able to vote. Seniors, women, people of color, young adults, those with low incomes, people with disabilities. Every citizen needs to review your documentation now to make sure you can vote in November. Please check with your local county election board to make sure the name on your photo ID closely matches the name you used when you registered to vote. Please contact us at 866-OUR-VOTE or 866-687-8683. And welcome back. Uh, that message uh, is very, very important. Uh, we have talked and will talk and will continue to talk about the need to make sure that your voter registration status is up to date. Uh, you need to go to either vote.org, um, Ballotpedia, or any of the sites. If you enter uh, in the search engine of your choice, uh, voter registration, you'll get a list of sites where you can check on the status of your registration, where you can update or renew or register to vote uh, for the first time if you haven't already. Uh, please make sure that you do that. And then between now and uh, Election Day in November uh, 2024, uh, check back. The uh, red states, the Republican states, are very actively working on purging people from voter rolls, uh, particularly in those uh, zip codes and districts that are uh, either heavily Democratic or heavily minority uh, you know, poor people and so forth, because those people historically tend to vote Democratic, and the Republicans are trying everything they can to reduce the number of registered Democrats uh, that are able to vote. So please make sure that you stay on top of your voter registration status. Uh, I check mine uh, once a month religiously, and I encourage you to do the same. So uh, we're back. Uh, we are going to spend this segment uh, doing a follow-up on the story I brought in the last podcast uh, that came out of Florida's Department of Education where their African-American history work group uh, submitted a, uh, a lesson plan for teaching African-American history in Florida public schools. And uh, as you might expect, it has created a huge amount of controversy, uh, up to and including uh, Vice President Kamala Harris uh, going to Florida and giving a scathing speech uh, about the, uh, the program that Governor DeSantis uh, signed into law uh, at the beginning of the week. Uh, and speaking of DeSantis, he has taken great pains uh, to say how he didn't write it, uh, it, it wasn't him, etc., etc., etc. However, there's a picture in the media of him signing the, uh, the order, putting this into force, and he's got a big smile on his face, like he's happy to do it. So, you know, the, the hypocrisy, uh, the, the backhandedness of the Florida Republican Party uh, in general and the Florida Republican governor in particular, uh, is on full display this past week. Uh, but, you know, there, there have been some other articles that have come out. Uh, on uh, the 21st, uh, Tampa Bay Times, uh, Jeffrey Solacek uh, was the author, and he wrote an article that talks about how the Florida Department of Education uh, is facing angry reaction from across the nation uh, to the new African-American history standards, uh, one element of which suggested that some slaves benefited from skills they learned while enslaved. Put a pin in that, because I'm going to talk about that in a second. Uh, responding to, the article states, responding to mounting criticism, uh, the department issued a statement Thursday offering 16 examples of historic figures it said fit that description. 
that they developed highly specialized abilities that helped them later in life is, quote, factual and well-documented, close quote, the department stated. Uh, Asked for more information, uh, they uh, cited as references uh, a 1895 book by William Cooper Nell called uh, The Colored Patriots of the American Revolution and, quote, Encyclopedia of African American History, 1619 to 1895, a uh, 2006 book edited by, edited by Paul Finkelman. Uh, so they're, they're citing, a, you know, materials that uh, supposedly back up the, uh, the elements of this uh, plan for how uh, schools will deal with telling uh, students about the uh, enslavement of African people in uh, the early uh, colonies and the early American states. One of the things that came to light was uh, information that said uh, uh, conflicting descriptions uh, of the 16 historic figures that were listed in the supporting material that was put forward. Uh, critics came forward to attack the department's claims. Among the problems they mentioned is that historic, or historic sources show several of the 16 individuals were never even slaves. Uh, so the standards, according to the article, the standards were approved Wednesday by the Board of Education, whose members were all appointed by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. The ensuing debate over the standards has been magnified by presidential politics. As I mentioned, Vice President Kamala Harris uh, was in Florida and gave a speech where she said, among other things, that uh, extremists want to, quote, replace history with lies. Uh, And as she gave her speech on Friday from the campaign trail in Utah the same day, uh, DeSantis accused Harris of attempting to, quote, demagogue and politicize history. Uh, he said he wasn't involved in devising the Florida of Education, uh, Board of Education standards, but defended components instructing that enslaved people were taught skills that benefited them. All right, let's uh, step out of the article for a second because I want to talk about this. Um, so there's been much made on this one particular element of this uh, 200 element uh, learning plan where it talks about how uh, as a result of being enslaved, uh, blacks obtained skills and professions that helped them later in life. So there's, there's a grain of truth in that. Yes, you know, they learned to be blacksmiths and they learned to be tailors. Uh, obviously, because of the labor they did mostly, uh, they learned all kinds of elements of uh, farming and uh, growing crops. But here's the thing that they don't say in this discussion is that when slavery ended, uh, the, the next phase was called Reconstruction. And this was where uh, the opportunity for these so-called skills that were developed by these enslaved people where they could be used, you know, in putting together, you know, businesses and farms of their own and uh, all kinds of things that they learned to do while they were enslaved. The problem with that is that during Reconstruction, the predominant uh, uh, workforce uh, for formerly enslaved people was as sharecroppers for the whites that owned the plantations prior to the end of slavery. So essentially, they turned around from you know, being the labor source for the slave owner uh, with no pay to being a, a sharecropper where they still tilled the land, did the work, but you know, got a, a small fraction of the economic benefit of that. And then, you know, as the, the deal was struck uh, between the North and the South to end Reconstruction, uh, rather than face the potential of going back into another war, uh, all of that went away 
And now these formerly enslaved people were facing the prospect of starting their own businesses, which the, uh, the, the Jim Crow laws and the segregation mechanisms that were in place uh, worked against them actually having uh, real long-term opportunities to grow, to generate uh, you know, the, some kind of generational wealth to pass along to their children and their children's children and grow a vibrant uh, African-American community in these formerly enslaved territories down in the southern states. Uh, we we see the the results of this resistance in you know the the Tulsa massacre and the Okohi massacre in Florida, where you know uh, in, in Tulsa hundreds of people were uh, killed and you know enti- the entire uh, Black Wall Street was burned to the ground. Houses were looted and burned to the ground, and in the Okohi. Uh, uh, uprising. Uh, 35 uh, black people were uh, shot or killed, lynched or whatever, and died. And, you know, that that effort uh, at self-sufficiency was put down by force by the white landowners of the time. So even though the argument can be made and is, is probably uh, partly legitimate, the systems that were in place back then, not to mention much like, you know, the kind of resistance we see today through, you know, gerrymandering and, and you know, voter disenfranchisement and, and, and out and out blatant racism, uh, you know, existed to keep uh, the formerly enslaved um, people down. So... You know, the the article goes on and talks about um, some of the figures that, you know, the article listed as gaining skills through slavery that they use to parlay into successful careers. One of them being, for example, Booker T. Washington, who, when the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, was actually nine years old and didn't obtain his education, his credentials, his status, uh, you know, start Tuskegee Institute and all of that until much later when he was a grown adult. So the article cites uh, a quote from Andrew Spar, president of the Florida Education Association Teachers Union, and said, quote, they just threw out a bunch of names to make it seem like something good came of slavery. The reality of it is the facts don't back up what they were saying. You know, as I mentioned, he included Booker T. Washington included on the state list as an educator. Washington was enslaved, but did not gain his skills until being freed at age nine. Uh, He worked in the mines and as a houseboy before entering school, according to Tuskegee University, which he founded in 1881. Another segment in the article sites where uh, Georgetown University postdoctoral fellow Joshua Stein took issue with the state's use of James Fortin and Lewis Latimer as examples. The department said Latimer was a blacksmith born into slavery in 1848 and freed in 1852, and Fortin was a shoemaker born into slavery in 1766 who escaped in 1784. A museum dedicated to Latimer states he was born to two self-liberated, formerly enslaved parents. Self-educated, he worked as an inventor, participating in the development of the telephone and incandescent lighting, among other inventions. Uh, The Museum of the American Revolution describes Fortin as a black entrepreneur born to free parents. He served on privateer ships during the Revolutionary War and became a wealthy sailmaker. Not only were these uh, not slaves, Stein wrote on Twitter, their provided professions were also incorrect. Quote, so you're wrong on both halves. Other uh, examples as cited in this article. The department listed Henry Blair as a slave who became a blacksmith and inventor. Biography.com and several other sites state there is no information indicated that Blair was enslaved. Uh, He invented a corn planter and a cotton planter 
becoming the second black person to earn a United States patent. The department uh, referred to uh, Paul Cuff as a shoemaker and ship owner born into slavery and escaped to freedom in 1781. According to paulcuffey.org, operated by the Westport Historical Society, Cuffey was born in 1759 to an emancipated slave. Having worked on whaling boats starting at age 14, he established a shipping business in Massachusetts. The statement also mentioned uh, John Chavis as a fisherman born into slavery. He was later known for his work in teaching. The North Carolina Museum of History states that Chavis was born into a free black family in North Carolina, fought in the Revolutionary War, and became an educator. Uh, Genesis Robinson, political director for Equal Ground Florida, said he was disappointed but not surprised at the information. He said members of the public have been trying to point out problems with the standards since the states first introduced them for input and comment. Quote, they don't care about an accurate accounting of black history, end quote, Robinson said. So, we could go on and on. Um, the article uh, was in the New Republic, no, I'm sorry, Tampa Bay Times. Uh, it was published on July 21st by Jeffrey Solocheck. You can go uh, to the Tampa Bay Times website and check it out for yourself. Uh, another article related to that, uh, which came out on July 26th, this one from the National Review, uh, entitled Educators Behind Florida's African-American History Standards Push Back on Claims That It Whitewashes Slavery. So, you know, the, the claims that are being made is that the, uh, the board's uh, African-American history curriculum is uh, whitewashing slavery. And, you know, if you look at the examples I just cited, and these are just a few uh, you can see where that argument uh, quite possibly holds some water. Uh, it said, uh, members of the work group that helped create Florida's new African-American history standards say there was no intention to suggest that African-Americans benefited from slavery, as Vice President uh, Kamala Harris uh, and several left-wing commentators have claimed. Um, now, I read most of that curriculum, and as I read it, it does in fact say that. Um, so instead they said they wanted Florida students to understand that people of slave in slavery were resilient people who used the skills they developed through training, through their ingenuity, and from their ancestors to better their lives despite slavery. Um, yeah, so I mean, that's a point that could be argued till the cows come home. Uh, you know, as as we know from historical records, uh, slavery uh, was not a a beneficial uh, uh, condition that you know African uh, people who were enslaved uh, had to live through. It was a a cruel and brutal uh, life of you know sun up to sundown, backbreaking work. It was a demeaning uh, existence where everything of the African culture that they brought with them uh, in the in the journey from you know Africa in, in the the slave routes uh, ultimately to wind up on the shores of you know the the American colonies and then the American states and you know it it really uh, is in my opinion. Uh, a, a blatant example of revisionist history being perpetrated right in front of our eyes. Uh, again, you can download the full curriculum uh, excerpt. It is 200 pages long, uh, and there are 70 specific items in it that deal with uh, how uh, the African-American uh, enslaved existence uh, occurred. So, you know, as I said, you know, in, the, in reviewing the first article, the paragraph in this one reads as, as follows. 
The standard that has drawn the most attention says that students should examine, quote, the various duties and trades performed by slaves, e examples of agriculture work, painting, carpentry, tailoring, domestic service, blacksmithing, and transportation, close quote. Critics have, have focused on a follow-up clarification which says that instruction should include how slave developed skills in which, in some instances, could be applied for their personal benefit. And according to a report from NBC News, uh, reported that the standards teach students that some black people benefited from slavery because it taught useful skills. Uh, Kamala Harris uh, countered that, saying that the standards show that Florida intends to replace history with lies. One thing that is clear uh, as you read uh, not only the, the standards that have been created, but the responses on both sides is that uh, those that are supporting these standards performing an exercise of uh, word parsing that they can use to back up their uh, established position. As it says in the article, one of the primary purposes of the standards is to allow people who were enslaved to tell their own stories. Uh, and this is a, a, a quote um, you know, from the New Republic article. Uh, if they say they were able to accomplish things despite slavery, then we need to repeat what they said, uh, noting that uh, Frederick Douglass started learning to read from his slave mistress before her husband put a stop to it. And uh, William Allen said, he exploited that opportunity to his own advantage. That doesn't mean he benefited from slavery, but it does mean that he acquired a skill from which he benefited while enslaved. Uh, again, parsing the language to uh, support uh, one's own point. Um, Allen noted that many skills that slaves had, they had before they became enslaved, they brought with them. So, you know, and, and that's a valid point. Uh, the uh, newly arrived slaves who came over from, you know, the continent of Africa uh, were already uh, possessing skills and talents and education and all of these things when they first set foot on American soil. So, you know, the, the idea that it was slavery that gave them these skills uh, that they could perhaps benefit from uh, in, in the future uh, is, you know, in and of itself incorrect. One of the other two people, uh, members of the work group that National Review interviewed was Valencia Robinson, who teaches African-American history and English in Volusia County and on Florida's East Coast. According to Robinson, uh, as, as quoted in the article, uh, people who were enslaved, she said, were forced to work sun up to sundown in a variety of jobs, but yet in some cases they were able to use their skills to gain, quote, some extra money and to purchase goods for themselves and for their families, uh, which is, you know, uh, obviously, I guess you could consider that a benefit. So William Allen, uh, who was a member of the, the group, the work group that put this together, uh, said, you know, first that he had never met Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, and DeSantis, who, defend, who defends the standards, was not involved in the work group's effort. It also states he wouldn't comment on the group's deliberations or work process, which was open to the public. So that raises the question of why did we not see any news about the work that was ongoing in this as they were preparing uh, this, this curriculum. Uh, he goes on to say, quote, what we have done is insist throughout the whole process that the comprehensive story be told, the truth be told, nothing else but the truth. He goes on to state, uh, quote, it is not our task to pick and choose for the sake of emphasizing pet agendas, but rather to allow the people who lived the history, who lived the experience, to tell their own stories. And that's what these standards are about. Uh, and according to Valencia Robinson, she said that while she recalled the work group's conversation about slaves developing skills, she didn't realize that particular line had been included in the approved version 
until the political firestorm erupted. She said that she understands some of the pushback and how some of the language could cause confusion and she would not be against amending the standard. In addition, uh, she said, quote, using the word benefit, period, uh, that just implies that they got something, Robinson said. There was nothing to be gotten from being in bondage and being raped and tortured. So, you know, the, the article goes on um, to, you know, talk further about some of the, the concerns that were raised and, and so forth about this. But I think you get the idea that, you know, while the, the, the belief that there was some benefits that may have accrued uh, from the, the, the life of being an enslaved person, uh, I think everyone would agree that overwhelmingly uh, this was a net negative experience in the lives of millions of Africans brought to this country uh, to basically work themselves to death. So this article, uh, it goes on to uh, get some opinions from uh, council members and members of the uh, Florida Board of Education, both pro and con. Uh, but you can find the article uh, in the National Review website. It was published on July 26th. Uh, the author was Ryan Mills. Uh, I, I urge you to uh, take a read through it. Uh, it. It makes some very, very good points. But I think, you know, it, going back to uh, it does uh, illustrate at least to some extent the amount of revision that is being applied to American history, n not just in Florida, but in other places around the country as well. Uh, we're seeing similar things with Native American history out in the uh, Plains and, and Midwest. Uh, we're seeing you know, similar things happening with uh, you know, Latin and Mexican history in the Southwest. Uh, everywhere we're looking, uh, you know, one group of people is using their political influence to change not only the narrative, but the, the telling of history of this country. And it is something that, you know, we need to uh, stay on top of and push back every opportunity we have. We also need to make sure that we find other methods for, you know, other accounts of you know, American history uh, to come forward. Uh, I would say if you want to do some research and, you know, read autobiographies of people like Booker T. Washington, uh, like Frederick Douglass, like Louis Latimer, uh, they are out there in uh, libraries and online uh, that you can find. And that's the way to get what these people are saying, you know, uh, the story told in their own words. Uh, that's how you can get their own words. So, you know, you can look at the standards. Uh, it's on the Florida Board of Education's website. Uh, download them, read them. Like I said, it's about 200 pages. Uh, but, you know, you can, you know, you can go through it. It's a uh, somewhat of a quick read because it's kind of like an outline. Uh, but I, I definitely think it is worth uh, following up and getting engaged with on your own. So as we always say, you get that true picture of the truth by getting it from as many different viewpoints as possible. So, you know, that's, that's a valid homework assignment. Uh, priority assignment, though, as I said earlier, please make sure to go out to uh, the you know, vote.org website or the ballotpedia.org uh, website and check on the status of your voter registration. I don't care which party you're with, um, but the, the states are doing everything they can to cull people off of the voting rolls ahead of the November election. So make sure that you check. If you're not registered, re-register. And then check your registration. Uh, I would suggest check it monthly because you don't want to come up to election day uh, and not be able to vote because you're... Uh, voter registration was purged. So with that being said, uh, we will call this an episode. As always, if you have comments or questions, if you want to weigh in 
on the Florida, uh, you know, African American study standards, uh, please send an email to firedupradio at yahoo.com. I'd love to get your take on it. Uh, I have not, you know, given you a deep, deep, deep dive in it uh, for, for time reasons, but it is worth your time to dig in and, and read it, understand it, and learn from it. So I will uh, call it there. Please stay safe. Take care of each other and yourselves, and I look forward to coming to you again with all new stories in seven days.